Uh, my name is Katrina LaRose, and I will be reading from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' Jesus's mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But now you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you can imagine, I've been a part of a lot of weddings in my life. And I've seen a few crises emerge from weddings over the years. But the one for me that's the most memorable is one that I was not officiating. It was a wedding of one of my nieces in South Florida, small little town where I grew up, in a, a quaint church that had been there since the 1920s, beautiful setting. Um, and the family was all there on the day of the wedding, very early, preparing and getting everything in order. I don't recall there being a, a person who was like the wedding director. Maybe there was, but the way you need to understand this is that my wife is a part of a family of four girls. So there were four directors. Everybody had something to say. Well, what happened is as the time approached, someone made a call to the florist and they said, where are the flowers? And the florist responded, flowers? Yes, flowers for the wedding. Well, we don't have a record of that. So only hours before the wedding was about to begin, my wonderful little niece, Laura, is over there sobbing. No flowers, no flowers. She's uncontrollable. This is ruining my wedding. Very quickly, one of the people in charge, and there were many, as I said, um, (laughs) commissioned Brenda, my wife and I, to find flowers. We went rushing out and went from one florist to another to try to get the right kind of flower, the right kind of color, to see what they had on hand. 
finally, the last place we stopped that, we really got a hit. I mean, we were collecting good flowers. Brenda had all this in mind. And I don't know how to collect flowers. I mean, I can be a beast of burden, but I can't even tell colors, so I wasn't very helpful. So I'm standing over there talking to the clerk, pulling out my credit card, ready to pay for whatever it is we're buying, and I start talking to her about what just happened. I said, can you believe this? I mean, we had a florist, and the flowers were ordered, and today's the day of the wedding, and they don't have our order? I mean, you know, like, how irresponsible. And I could see my wife kind of looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> we got all the flowers in the car, sat down, and she looked at me. She said, I think this was the flower shop that forgot the order. <laughs> no wonder they weren't outraged. Well, we got the flowers back. Everybody joined in, put it all together. It was a beautiful wedding. Um, but there was a little stress at the beginning because of the crisis. In, in this passage today, we have a crisis. It's a bit different. And it's not as easy to solve, right, if you hadn't have been Jesus. Because there's not six different wine shops in town. You have to plan way ahead to have enough wine for all these guests. So let's paint the context of a Jewish wedding. It's a fascinating event. It would be one of the most important events in any village in Palestine at that time. But not only that, weddings were not just personal about the bride and groom. They were actually very symbolic. The symbolism related to the Messianic age. Think the bride and the groom image that Jesus uses. The bride of Christ, which is the church. Think of the wedding supper of the Lamb. Think of all these images throughout the New Testament and in the Jewish tradition. That's how big a wedding was. It was huge. It was huge. It was a celebration of something beyond the event itself, a messianic celebration. One of the other things that's interesting about uh, a Jewish wedding uh, in the first century is uh, the couple was not whisked away to a honeymoon you didn't go anywhere. As a matter of fact, you, you stayed right there. There was an entourage for the groom that escorted him to the bride's home, and he picked up his bride with the escorts all around him and took her to the new home. There was a feast that took place, and sometimes these wedding feasts would last for seven days. Uh, a week or maybe a little bit less, but they were elaborate celebrations. Um, one of the things that was incredibly important in the celebration was wine. Uh, there was a rabbinic saying back then and even today that goes like this, without wine, there is no joy. Okay. I mean, I think I felt joyful without wine, but maybe I missed it, Right. Uh, but, you know, that's how important wine was at a wedding. Um, there was also dancing at the wedding. No exceptions. Everybody danced. Even Jesus. Everybody drank. Even Jesus. Somehow Baptists have kind of overlooked that, I think. <laughs> 
Hey, I can say that. It was ordained Baptist, right? We used to say in seminary a joke. When the Baptists had a party, there would be Pepsi and Doritos. And when the Episcopalians had a party, there was wine, cheese, and crackers. Um, it's, it's a difference in tradition, right? I grew up, there were no signs of wine or dancing at our weddings. It would have been a disgrace, though, and this is the key point, for the person hosting the wedding to have run out of wine. Uh, Mid-Eastern hospitality is still big, but it was really big back then, and that would have been an enormous disgrace. After the feast was finished, the bride and the groom were escorted to their new home. And it usually happened, almost always, after dark, sometimes way late into the night. Remember the illustration of Jesus and the bridegrooms waiting for the, for the groom to come, and they had their torches, their lamps, and some of them had run out of oil? That's the way it was. You had a lamp, a torch, you were ready, and when it was time to go, you would march the bride and the groom to their home. But if the groom and bride's home was straight down 3rd Street about a half a mile, you would take the long way around. You would wind through every street in the town and finally end up over there on 3rd Street. Why? Because the streets were lined with guests greeting and giving blessings to the bride and groom. Now, weddings are important nowadays, but I think that canopy of torches, that greeting throughout the entire town and the messianic images are bigger than we experience today. But how about the context of this particular wedding? At this particular wedding, you will notice in the reading that Jesus and his disciples were invited. I'm reading between the lines. They didn't have written RSVPs back then, right? Maybe they didn't know how many people were coming with Jesus. Maybe they didn't know how many kids another family member had. I don't know what happened, but clearly they ran out of wine, and it was a disgrace. Um, It was a catastrophe. And Mary seems to be somewhat connected to the family. We can't figure out how, but she's at least connected with them in terms of empathy, She looks at Jesus and said, they ran out of wine. you got to do something. I I don't know if you've experienced the same thing as a son, but I have. Your mother turns to you and says, do something. Right? That's the moment here. Do something, Jesus. And he says to her, woman, what does this have to do with you and me? My time hasn't come yet. Unpacking that whole phrase is really interesting because it sounds like he's insulted. It sounds like he's being kind of rude to his mother. But uniformly, commentators will tell you that that wasn't the intent at all. As a matter of fact, it was a common phrase. Actually, woman, your son, was the words that Jesus used from the cross as he was dying, giving John to her as her son. As her son. So it it was a common phrase. The question is, how was it said, correct? It could have been said in a rude manner or maybe not. And again, most commentators would suggest it. it really wasn't rude. 
And for that reason, uh, translators have done their best to bring this to light. Um, here, here's just some of the phrases you might find if you, if you do a look. A translation would be, woman, what's that have to do with you and me? Another one would be, dear woman, that's not our problem. These people are really stupid. They didn't bring enough wine. (laughs) Another translation might be, mother, why are you getting me involved in this? It's not my deal. My time hasn't come yet. I'm not ready to be the central figure in this celebration, even though I am the Messiah. That's a lot of reading between the lines, I'll admit. I think it's also interesting that whether it was rude or not, he didn't promise to do anything. He just said, why are you getting me involved? And then she turns to (laughs) the people who are taking care of the wedding and says, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, if you haven't experienced that before, you haven't lived very long, right? She basically, very passively aggressive, sorry to Mary, says, I don't care what you said. You know what you need to do. Now you do whatever he tells you to do because I know you're going to do the right thing, right? That's my interpretation. Do whatever he says to do. She knew he was going to take care of it. Maybe because... She knew he had the power to, maybe because she knew he loved her and the people and didn't want shame to come to the bride and groom's parents. For whatever reason, he just turned and he did it. He told them to fill up these six very tall containers Stone jars, not clay jars. I may say something about that in a minute. And then take the stone jars and pour them into the pitchers, let's call them. And then take them to the steward of the feast, the guy who's kind of in charge. Some people call it master of ceremony. Some people call it the manager, whatever. It it was the head dude. Let him drink it. He drank it. And he said, really? You saved the best for last? That's not how we do it. You know that. It wasn't like he was complaining. It was just he was surprised. You wait until the tongue has been well saturated with the wine. And you give them the best when they can taste it the most. And then as the taste buds begin to receive, you bring out the cheaper wine. But you brought out the best wine. I mean, what else would you expect from Jesus, right? Turning water into wine. It's not going to be cheap. It's remarkable wine. By the way, uh, calculations on how much wine was produced on that particular occasion at that event was about 120 gallons of wine. So Jesus took it seriously. Now, when you look at the story, the broader story of Jewish tradition and the story of this particular wedding, you have to ask what signs are emerging in the story. At the very end, John says, the disciples watched all this and believed, put their trust in Jesus, because apparently it was the first full-scale miracle 
he had done, at least in Canaan. In the Synoptic Gospel, I referred to this several weeks ago, there are differences compared to John. In the other three Gospels, an event like this would have been called a miracle. And most of the time when miracles are described in especially the Gospel of Mark, but the others as well, they're associated with power, right? Jesus is all-powerful, and he does this. John, for whatever reason, never speaks that way. I don't think he's trying to contradict the other Gospels. He's just saying, I want you to see miracles differently. So instead of using the very word miracle, he always uses the word sign. Why a sign? Think of it this way. If you're traveling across country, I know you got your GPS now, but especially in the old days, and still for me, I'm looking ahead at road signs. I'm looking ahead at an intersecting interstate. I'm looking ahead with anticipation about how much further we have to go, 123 miles to St. Louis or Louisville. The signs in John's gospel, I would say, are kind of like signposts. They're pointing to something else. I think that's what John is trying to say when he talks about signs. I'm just letting you see this so you know that. So what is the sign in this story? where we could dissect all kinds of potential signs. One right at the front, and you may say this is overkill, but most people see this as an illusion. When, When did this event happen? On the third day. When did Jesus, the Messiah, rise from the dead? On the third day. Maybe just a slight illusion. But there's more that's really connected to tradition here. If the Jewish culture viewed weddings as a celebration that related to a messianic celebration that was to come, the sign that Jesus gave his disciples was in effect inaugurating the messianic age. He said it on multiple occasions. He spoke concerning the Messianic age on multiple occasions. He said, I am here and I am announcing the kingdom of God. The Messiah has arrived and it is me. And on this particular occasion, he's using a wedding feast, which always pointed to the Messianic kingdom to point to himself. Also, those great big jars I mentioned, they were stone jars, not clay jars. Because in the Jewish tradition, clay jars could become unpure. Stone jars were considered to be ceremonially completely pure and were used for a very specific reason, to wash your hands before you ate, even to wash your hands between courses in the meal. 
it was almost as though it was holy water. You may remember Jesus speaking about his disciples washing their hands or not washing their hands and images like that. And what did he routinely do? Whether it was washing your hands or any number of laws, he always pointed back to something else. In this case, routinely the heart. It's not about clean hands. It's about a clean heart. He also uses references in the future to new wine, the wine of the kingdom, and how it shouldn't be contained in old wineskins. But there's something else um, in this sign, and, and I, I want to call it a miracle if John's okay with that. What Jesus is doing is he's pronouncing himself as the creator and the Lord of the universe. You have to think about it for a little bit. Where does wine come from? Where are grapes grown? They grow because of natural water. And the natural water goes through the vine and produces a grape which leads to exquisite wine. What did Jesus do? Lord of the universe, he simply sped up the process. Right now, just like water produces wine, I'm going to take water and boom, produce the wine. Because I am the Lord of the universe, the Messiah you have always longed for. So listen to me. If those are big spiritual signs, I just want to end with some practical application that might seem mundane compared to the big spiritual signs. The first is this. Jesus performs this sign in circumstances and with people who are very ordinary. Matter of fact, the people were probably rather impoverished in the northern part of Israel. And in so doing, he sanctifies what is common. He takes the process of water becoming wine and he sanctifies it. He blesses it. He brings it about in a miraculous way. He takes the ordinary event and he steps into it and he makes it miraculous. You want a definition of miracles? It's not a breaking of the laws of nature. No, it's Jesus Christ taking the ordinary that is in front of him and making it what it ought to be. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, he's not doing hocus pocus. He's not breaking a law of nature. He's saying this is the way it ought to be. People should not die. It wasn't so in the beginning. Jesus takes the ordinary and enters into it and sanctifies it. 
Jesus, at that occasion, he laughs and he drinks and he dances with his friends and his family. Ordinary circumstances. By the way, other religious traditions that were around Jesus and criticized him heavily, like the Essenes, a sect of the Pharisees, would never have participated in such activities. Dancing? Are you kidding me? Drinking wine? Not a chance. But Jesus steps into the ordinary circumstances of life and brings it to life. That's why he was accused of being a friend of sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors because he stepped into ordinary life with ordinary people and he sanctified it. There's a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary I've referred to before. Basically, in the Liturgy of the Ordinary, the author invites us to understand the ordinary as something that Jesus that God can inaugurate as a sacred moment. I mean, cooking and washing the dishes and scrubbing the floor and cleaning and changing diapers. There's something in those ordinary moments that is beautiful, profound, And Jesus stepped into them. You know, Jesus soiled himself when he was a baby. They changed his diapers the same way you changed the diapers of your children. And we might think, well, Mary in those moments was changing the diaper of the Son of God. It must have been, no, no, no. It was a diaper. It was poop. It stunk like everybody else. And that moment was somehow a natural but holy moment. As it can be for you. The second thing I want to mention uh, that I see in this passage that is a practical application is Mary herself. <laughs> I've already alluded to her. Do whatever he tells you to do. Do you, do you think Mary knew what he was going to do? I don't think so. I think that Mary just trusted him. She, she knew he was going to do what was right. And it wasn't right for these hosts to be humiliated. So Jesus fixed it. I um, also wonder if that says something of faith for us. How many times have you called on God to do A, B, C, or D, and really trusted, and said to yourself, I really have no idea what God's going to do with my request, but I'm going to trust, and I will wait that God is good, 
She doesn't dictate the process. She simply trusts. That's a posture of faith that I think is applicable to us. And the final comment goes back to the first. God can give us signs and can answer prayer through ordinary circumstances. So if that's true, can we just all take a collective deep breath and trust God? Trust God to use the ordinary circumstances of our life to turn water into wine. Let's pray. God, we're so glad um, that you sent Jesus. We have so many songs about what Jesus did, and they're marvelous. But at least right now, Lord, we just want to pause and say thank you for taking the ordinary moments of life and infusing them with glory. And we want to ask you, Lord, that you will help us trust you to continue to do the same. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.